Welcome to the VO2 Lounge podcast. This initially started out as being a quick guide, but in the usual fashion, this has turned into an in-depth review of improving running performance. Other than the really small details surrounding planning your exact day-by-day training plan for the year and whether taking certain supplements such as bicarb before a race really work or not, Almost everything running has been covered in this episode to some extent. Obviously, there will be things that have been missed. As a result, I will likely be releasing a 5k and a half marathon slash marathon episode, which should be only about 15 minutes long. But if you're a new or advanced runner, this should have something for you to learn that either you've heard before or will take a different spin on it or something completely new about training. Over the last few decades, long distance running has grown in popularity with more and more athletes participating in running events like marathons and half marathons. But in the UK in particular, the rise of the park run, and for those outside of the UK, it's a free 5k run held in parks all over the UK. That is a mass start, mass participant event. Um, This has led to somewhat of a running boom amongst competitive, mature and young uh, runners of all ages. Now, it is essential to ask yourself, why are you running? Not only the distance of the event, for example, whether it's a 5k, a 10k or a marathon is going to impact your training, but whether you're doing your training for overall performance, like you want to hit an impressive runtime, or whether it is for overall health and longevity in general, because this is going to have a drastic impact on how your training ends up looking. For runners and their trainers, if you happen to have one, often the challenge is to find a training volume that is high enough for an optimal running performance, but not that high it will increase the risk of injuries. Currently, there is a trend actually in the Netherlands that runners train for a marathon with a high training intensity and training runs that max at 14 kilometers. It's claimed that this way of training decreases the injury risk but has no effect on the finishing time of the runner. There, has, there are some indications that replacing a small percentage of the endurance training sessions with a high interval training improves endurance performance. However, the effects of replacing a long endurance run with training runs of high intensity and low volume remains unknown from the studies. So, now into things. Now we've got the introduction and the idea of what we're about to talk to out of the way. So what happens when you're getting faster? These are going to be the pillars of endurance training. I think it's important that you know exactly what's happening to the body um, during running and what is making you faster because it can help you understand why you're doing the training you're doing and ways it can be manipulated to get an optimal performance. So several adaptions occur as a result of your training with the end result being an improvement in your running speed. That is the thing that we are actually measuring. Um, these are VO2 max, lactate threshold, substrate utilization, and we will touch on running economy. So VO2 max, elite endurance athletes have a very high VO2 max. Um, if you haven't heard, if you have heard of this, this is obviously obvious, but if you haven't heard of VO2 max or you have heard of it and you don't know what it is, I do have a full episode explaining why exactly it is, but As a quick summary, it is the maximal oxygen uptake measured often in milliliters per kilogram per minute 
um, for a relative value and in liters per minute for an absolute uh, value. Um, evidence suggests that a person's VO2 max is largely uh, genetically predetermined. However, this isn't the end for you. It doesn't mean if you've got a low VO2 max now that it's all over. An untrained person can improve his or her VO2 max by up to 20% with the correct training. The goal of any endurance athlete um, should be to reach his or her uppermost limit in order to achieve the best possible performance that they can. Um, all of these forms of running, even 1500 meter running, is extremely aerobic. We're talking 90-95% aerobic for 1500 meters of running. So a 5k, a 10k, a half marathon and a marathon are undoubtedly extremely aerobic. So having a large VO2 max is incredibly important because it determines how much oxygen, one of the key fuels in fueling the body, you can actually utilize. If your VO2 max is 50, it is completely different to someone who's 70 because they are able to just simply fuel the body more. So then on to lactate threshold. This is also the name of a training zone and there are lots of discussions and arguments, especially in cycling, about what this is. So I think it's important to dig into this a little and give some definitions. Lactate threshold is the point at which during incremental exercise, lactate builds up in the bloodstream at a level that is higher than the resting values. Um, lactate threshold is a good predictor of submaximal fitness. Um, what is exercise pace can be maintained over a prolonged period of time without fatigue. That is submaximal fitness. Um, athletes typically reach lactate threshold at a higher percentage of VO2 max than untrained individuals. Uh, these are some averages. The average person reaches their lactate threshold at about 50 to 60% of their VO2 max. Um, recreational athletes, on the other hand, reach their lactate threshold at about 65 to 80% of their VO2 max. And then elite endurance athletes reach their lactate threshold at 85 to 95% of their VO2 max. So not only do they have a higher VO2 max in the first place, they can just operate at a level way higher relatively than you can. So even if they were to have your VO2 max, they're still ridiculously um, good at what they do because they're able to just operate so close to to their limit. If you're wondering why uh, the numbers are so different, it's because highly trained athletes are able to use more and more uh, lactate as fuel in the muscle than untrained, uh, moderately and moderately trained people, uh, meaning it reaches the blood at a higher point of their VO2 max than other people. Uh, effectively, what the test is doing is you're taking a sample out of your blood and you're looking to see in your blood, like the your entire bloodstream, whether there is any lactate flowing around. And the reason it'd be flowing around is because you've produced too much and it's now reached the it's left the muscle and it's gone into the bloodstream so that it can be used and utilized by other organs and muscles throughout the body now lactate is actually a fuel and so what in elite athletes happens is that as they're exercising they are producing this lactate and they are able to rather than dump it out of circulation in this uh, reaction that's going on to fuel the muscle they're able to 
like capture it and utilize it again over and over again until a point like every human it gets to a point where their body goes okay there's too much it needs to go somewhere else and that's the point where it can be picked up in the blood uh, lactate threshold or lt training is a popular method of improving endurance performance recreational and serious athletes may use their lactate threshold to determine how to train and what sort of pace they can maintain during endurance sports so from all this you can see where some of the confusion comes from as people may know if they're a cyclist ftp and threshold from cycling but in the respects of 20 minute tests and ramp tests and it coming out as sometimes people call it their lactate threshold um, you can see how this is completely an estimate because you have no idea of the actual lactate buildup in the body and the measurements haven't been taken so this is why it, often you can see overestimations from these kind of tests and if you do have the money or the know-how or someone who can do this for you um, lactate testing is somewhat invaluable there there are other methods of training equally equally as well but if you're someone who's prone to overdoing it having that kind of number will give you numbers you can work to that you know are personalized to you and are not based on someone else's physiology. Now on to substrate utilization. Our body's energy system can use either fat or carbohydrate stores in order to reduce energy, ATP to be specific, to fuel the muscles. But during higher levels of intensity, carbohydrates are typically used more. However, with the right training, Athletes can utilize fat as fuel even at higher intensities and therefore endure longer bouts of exercise due to an abundance of fat stores on our body in comparison to glycogen. A common concept is that we can store about 90 minutes of glycogen in our body in things like the liver uh, and in the muscle. This does depend on the level of training of the athlete and the size of the athlete but it's just kind of a good number to give you a concept of without any glycogen. Um, 90 minutes at like your high intensity effectively um, now you may ask what are the right sorts of training is this to improve uh, this fat oxidative capacity which is what you're trying to improve to improve your uh, utilization utilization of fat as fuel uh, where it's primarily zone two with some three and four depending on your level of training and how many zone model you're utilizing but effectively zone two undoubtedly very good zone for improving fat oxidation it's a low enough intensity that yes maybe if you're incredibly um, under trained you may still be leaning on uh, glucose but for the most part if you are properly in zone two um, you are going to see a heavy utilization of fat uh, three and four the further up you're going so like tempo and like a sweet spot the less trained you are the more you're going to be leaning into your uh, glycogen stores and this is more the case because when you're incredibly fit these zones are going to be higher up say you're running it's going to be these are going to be faster speeds and it's going to be easy to modulate yourself between three four and two Whereas when you're untrained, a difference of five seconds per kilometer could be the difference between you being in zone two and at your threshold. So it's 
harder to kind of firmly stick to these and your ability to stay in these zones like tempo and uh, sweet spot are going to be diminished by just your state of training so zone two for amateurs is the best place to kind of stick to um to understand how these markers are affecting by long-term endurance training it's necessary to look at the physiology physiological adaptions that occur these can be divided into centrally and peripherally mediated adaptions. Um, central is cardiovascular. Um, this includes uh, decreased heart rate, usually resting heart rate, but also working heart rate to some extent. Um, increased heart stroke volume, which is just the volume of blood pumped by the heart each beat. Uh, increased blood plasma, so the volume of blood this means you're going to carry more red blood cells and, and are able to just carry more in, like fuel to the working muscles and increased blood plasma allows for better cooling of the body and fueling and cooling uh, at the same time. Uh, reduced blood viscosity which just lowers kind of blood pressure and also allows for the blood to flow better. Uh, often this is an adaption of heat acclimatization because it allows for better cooling of the body. Uh, increased cardiac output which is the combination of this stroke volume and uh, at higher uh, heart rates so the actual total output of the system um, increased mitochondrial volume in muscle fibers being used um, so mitochondria are where the reaction is taking place to produce this ATP and fuel the muscles so it's just allowing for a it is hard to talk about in non-engineering terms, but a bigger footprint or fueling system, it just allows for more more fuel to the muscles. You, and you don't have a bottleneck. It's like upgrading from a one-inch hose to a two-inch hose or a, whatever measurement you want to use. It's just more uh, surface area for reactions to occur. Um, increase in the number of and size of myoglobin and oxidative enzymes so it just allows for more oxidation of both carb, um, carbohydrates and fats um, and peripheral physiological adaptions are next these include uh, capillarization uh, there's an increase in the surface area supplied by the venous and arterial capillaries. This allows for increase, uh, increased heart dissipation during intense... Uh, sorry, it allows for increased heat dissipation during intense exercise. Uh, improved glycogen and fat storing capabilities in muscles. This allows for more fuel to be stored on board, uh, lengthening the time an athlete can work out. So if you ever heard of uh, carb loading where you're intaking a large substantial amount of carbohydrates one two three even four days before an event the better trained an individual is as a result of the training and the body's adaption it wants to keep more fuel on board you will have a better ability to store more of these carbohydrates so maybe if you're untrained you may you may do a you may be able to store seven gram eat seven grams per kilogram of body weight and then when you're extremely well trained you may be able to do 10 15 grams per kilogram um, so 10 usually is the number people go for but it doesn't mean you're going to store all of it uh, and the better trained you are the more uh, you're going to be able to store 
the development of slow twitch type 1 fibers these increase efficiency and resistance to fatigue this isn't to say that you if you were destined to be usain bolt that by doing a lot of long distance runnings that suddenly you're going to swap all the way to be a kipchoge it just means that it's going to it's going to just push a little bit the, the needle's just going to move slightly different and focus on a different type of muscle fibers if you were never born to be this like elite endurance athlete it's it yeah yeah it's not saying it's going to change drastically uh catabolism heightens an athlete's capacity to use fat and glycogen stores as energy um the oxygen transportation and distribution efficiency increases so just the efficiency of transporting it around um oxidative enzymes um one is SDH, it's pronounced succinate dehydrogenase, not sure if I got that right, but SDH and other en um, others enable mitochondria to break down nutrients to create ATP. These are present up to two and a half times more than normal in well-trained endurance athletes, while myoglobin is present 75 to 80% more. So, sorry, I switched between methods effectively 250% more and 75 and 80% more for the two various things. So, effectively, the things necessary for the production of the ATP are in more of an abundance. So, you can see clearly that there are many adaptions occurring to make you run faster. And it's not as that simple a thing. Okay, and as promised, running economy. Before moving on to training modalities and the characteristics of training, I thought it would be important to talk about running economy. Uh, this is something that is mentioned quite a lot in various websites and media outlets claiming that it can be improved drastically and revolutionize your running. Uh, after reading through quite a few different papers and sources on this, unfortunately, it's not as clear cut as this. Uh, there are effectively too many unmodifiable factors relating to your physiology that affect our running economy as human beings and therefore any recommendations made to your running form should be approached with some caution. This is probably not the news people would like to receive but the best thing you can do is go with what feels natural and run with shoes that suit you well and are comfortable. Yes, a Kenyan runner is going to have a better running economy than you in most cases. Um, but this is the final few percent and they are simply never going to matter in your case for the most part unless you really are elite. Uh, as something else is likely going to limit you like for example the amount of time you can afford to train and other genetic factors like limb length and uh calf length and various other things that are going to limit you worrying about your running efficiency and economy and all this i wouldn't worry about too much and by the sounds of things at the moment if you are paying for a service that examines it and they're trying to manipulate your body into a position to try do it at the moment it doesn't look like the gains are going to be as substantial as the cost arguably just buying a pair of Nike vapor flies might be better but again can't be said okay so congratulations if you made it this far already we've got through all the technical mm, jargony stuff as to what's actually occurring to make you a faster runner and now we're on to the actually uh, 
formulating a training plan and how much should you run and all this other stuff. So we're going to go over training volume, training frequency, um, intervals and intensity distribution, periodization, uh, strength training for runners, five, the differences between 5k and 10k and marathon and half marathon training plans and then we'll get on to tapering. So starting off with volume. Results from studies have shown then half marathon runners a higher training volume, longer longest endurance run and higher training pace are related to a faster finish time while a higher training volume and longer longest endurance run are also related to less uh, decline during the race. Um, in marathon runners, a lower weekly training volume, shorter longest endurance run and slower training pace are associated with a slower finish time, while a higher weekly training volume and faster training pace were related to a faster finish time. I think these are things that if, any, if you read anyway, you kind of go, duh. But people, I find when... They're in the canteen at work talking about uh, running stagnation. It's always overlooked, the total running volume and usually intensity and, I don't know, other factors are considered first before simply volume and progressive overload, really. Essentially from this, it's quite obvious that training volume is quite key um, which makes sense seeing as it's an endurance sport um, for injury risk which is the next thing that's going to really play on people's mind um, more than 65 kilometers a week for men and between 48 and 63 kilometers a week for women has been found to be related to a higher risk of running related injuries in recreational runners uh, so if you're very keen then that's a number to aim for but most people i think will probably fall short in most cases of these values for some uh, better clarity a half marathon should have a longest run of around 21 kilometers and 32 uh, kilometers which is 2.8 hours at the stated pace of 5 minutes 15 per kilometer the reason i've stated this is because um I think it's important, especially when you're starting out, to adjust these total run distances for your speed. Because it may mean that you're running five hours a week to do 32 kilometers. Sorry, I realize I read that slightly wrong. But the longest run of 21 kilometers and 32 kilometers of total weekly run volume. So adjust that. Use it as a, um, a gauge based on someone who's running a 515 kilometer and make it from there um, and then for marathon running we're looking at 40 kilometers um, weekly uh, run volume with the longest run of more than 25 kilometers so that's 3.5 hours a week and then with 65 kilometers so 5.7 hours a week um, of weekly volume being shown to reduce the drop off in speed during the race. The takeaway from this is that your longest run doesn't appear to be much of a big deal. Instead, your running frequency and hours uh, racked up during the week are more important, really. And this is something I think key for people to look at is just trying to, if you're doing a marathon, rather than focusing on running a marathon in training, is focusing on maybe running five days a week because look 5.7 hours 
Um, if you're running five days a week, you know, an hour a day is quite a lot, but it's a lot less than having to do a three hour run on the weekend because you only did two one hour runs in the week. And this is where I think injuries come in because that repetitive stress on the body of just constantly pounding away and even something we'll move on to later is uh, is double days. If you're wondering uh, during this how much volume you need to get faster for your local 5k, because I did mention park runs at the beginning of this episode, um, well, the answer is the same, unfortunately, to some extent. Uh, 1,500 meter runners are peaking at about 170 kilometers a week just to run 1,500 meters on race day. Although much shorter than a marathon, where 99% of the contribution to running will be aerobic, a 5km run is over 90% aerobic, meaning that volume is still needed to sustain a high pace for the entire race. Although your longest run is likely doesn't need to be as long, maybe 15 kilometers for amateurs, if you think that uh, the marathon is the recommended longest run is just shy of a marathon a half marathon the longest recommended run is just shy of a half marathon again um, you're probably going to want to do more than 5k for your longest run because once you start getting quite fit this is just going to be a very short run it's going to be you know it could be 25 minutes Um, so something like 10k uh, 15k just to get to kind of an hour an hour and a half to get the aerobic system working is kind of a good gauge so running frequency which we have kind of touched on already but running frequency recommendations can kind of be inferred from earlier suggestions that high running volume for half a marathon would see improved results but run Uh, longer than 21 kilometers is not necessary this means that high frequency is likely desirable elite middle distance and long distance runners will be training between 6 and 13 times a week as it is common practice to perform double days due to running's impact on the body Uh, it allows often for faster sessions and as there are is time for the body to recover in between these sessions and a lower chance of injury because the ligaments and tendons and muscles aren't getting they're getting pounded the same amount but just not repetitively in such a long stint so rather than having a two-hour run you've got two one-hour runs in comparison to cycling we could go out every day for three hours and yes there's a big toll on the body but there's no the mechanical kind of the, the impact the abuse that is going through it is just not comparable okay so on to the some of the more detailed kind of aspects of the actual training itself what are you doing on your runs uh, so intervals and intensity distribution is something key to look into um, so it's well known lots of people have already discussed that elite endurance athletes follow an 80 20 split of low intensity to high intensity training and for the most part it's okay for amateurs to do the same Uh, performing high intensity intervals between one and two times a week is enough for most amateurs to see significant improvement in their running uh, speed 
Running can be split into continuous and into interval training. So these can be, this is a reasonable list. So you've got your long runs. These are low intensity, steady state running, kind of at marathon pace or one or two kilometers slower. Um, performed on forgiving surfaces such as forest trails where possible typically duration is kind of 60 to 90 minutes but two hour runs are also performed during the preparation period this so during the winter or when you are miles away from an event there is no need to run for two hours because these suggestions are based on elite individuals so if you're not elite don't worry about two hour runs really do not worry about two hour runs until you're getting close to your events um you've got your aerobic threshold run now this is where obviously people's confusion with different thresholds come from because we're talking about two different ones right here um so this is a sustained run at moderate intensity sort of half marathon pace um Typically, the duration is 15 to 40 minutes. The session should not be extremely fatiguing. So you could also sort of, especially if you're... Like, you can do this two ways. You could do this as part of your long run, or you can do it as just a shorter run in the week, like a 10-minute warm-up, 20 minutes at threshold, at like aerobic threshold. So this is almost like a kind of sweet spot feeling effort. Um, you're ticking along but you could really do this for a long time and then maybe as you get further and further into your uh, like phase getting in preparation for the event you can kind of up that to 40 minutes if you're a really strong athlete this could mean you're doing a like a uh, 10 minute warm-up into a 40 minute 10k effectively kind of and then you're back into a cool down to finish off your session you then got fartlek, um, which is an unstructured long distance run. Over, it can be over various terrains uh, and it could be 30 to 60 minutes in length, where periods of fast running are intermixed with periods of slower running, um, pacing variations in general. So it could be you see a hill, you're like, yeah, let's uh, kind of give it a bit of beans up the hill. You could put in a bit of effort and then you just chill out for a bit. You hit a nice bit of pavement you're like oh this feels good let's push on a little bit it's kind of the kind of thing you would do with your friends just like bursts of intensity followed by just there's no structure it's not like you're doing five by ten or whatever there's no structure really to it and then you've got progressive long runs this is commonly used apparently for training amongst african runners the first part of the session is identical to an easy long run just steady jogging along um, after about half the distance, the pace gradually quickens. In the final uh, portion, the pace increases to an aerobic threshold, half marathon kind of pace, uh, or slightly past that. And then athletes will then back off when the pace becomes too strenuous. This isn't intended to be some crazy interval session. So moving on to intervals, you have various types. Um, you've got Again, aerobic threshold intervals. The kind of difference between this and the run is sort of the aerobic threshold run is kind of one block at this sort of level, whereas the aerobic threshold intervals are intervals that are 3 to 10 minutes long in duration. Um, and they're at, again, half marathon pace. So really the aerobic threshold run is for more kind of advanced runners and this is for 
less so if Antrenas or earlier on in the season. Um, so they're three to ten minutes in length. For track people, you may have heard eight by twelve, eight twelve by eight hundreds, um, and then you have a one minute recovery in between. Generally, I go with. Um, Say you're doing a 10 minute interval, you do 50% of that duration as rest, at so 5 minutes kind of rest. You can start bringing it down more and more as a kind of progressive overload method. And then the total time spent in zone, so not the run, the time spent in zone is kind of 25 to 40 minutes. So say you did 10 minute blocks, the maximum amount you want to do in a session is 40 minutes at this intensity, so 4 blocks. Then you've got VO2 max intervals. These are between two and four minutes in duration. They're kind of they're a one-to-one -one ratio. There will be one minute on, one minute off, two minute on, two minute off, four minute on, four minute off. And effectively, the shorter the duration, the higher the intensity. These are just they're quite hard to pace correctly. I think the shorter they are, the easier they are. If you're doing a one-minute interval, these are quite easy because it's basically just going full gas really it's giving it all your all resting for a minute giving it your all resting for a minute and so it's kind of harder and harder the longer it gets to really understand how to pace it not do too little and not do too much um the recommended total time in zone is about 15 to 20 minutes 20 minutes of vo2 max is a real session that is something that in reality should not be done until quite late into the training periods this is something that you might be doing i don't know four weeks out from a, your major event if your event requires this kind of level of intensity um, it's not something to use mid mid cycle or it is it's really really strenuous um, then you've got these other kind of things which are like lactate tolerance testing, lactase production training. These are just kind of like various sides of the uh, lac the aerobic kind of zone above and below and whatever. And I think for the most part, yeah, it's overcomplicating your training. The next thing that is really useful for uh, amateurs is hill reps. Um, the main intention is overloading horizontal propulsive muscle groups while reducing uh, ballistic loading. Basically, when you run uphill, you can feel the utilization of different muscles and strengthening those different muscles. Um, and then it's also taking some of that, that load off the knees. And so it can be quite a good way of getting a low impact session in in the week. And it's a really easy interval um, in the sense of it's just easy to just have fun going up and down hills really you can make a little loop you go up the hill round and back up and do that a couple of times the incline should be about five to ten percent and the hill should be about 15 seconds to four minutes just whatever basically you're trying to achieve there's no shame in having a hill that you can't get to the top of without being blowing so you just run halfway up turn around you know there are plenty of big hills that are too big um so yeah, those are the kind of main training zones to kind of uh, look into when you're planning your session. Okay, so then periodization. The main reason that periodization is in this review 
is because I think it's something that's overlooked by people wanting to improve their running, especially 5Ks. I think marathons and half marathons, because you can't do the event every week, it's le- people are less likely to suffer from this. But 5K runners, because say you can go do a park run every weekend, essentially what I'm saying is don't go do your target run event whatever it is expecting to get faster every single time you want to have some kind of structure you even if you're doing just a 5k identifying either specific races or a period of the year where you would like to be at your fittest is the way you're going to see the most improvement you can split your year up into a preparation phase which can sort of be split into an early and uh, mid to late preparation phase a pre-competition phase and then the kind of competition slash mid-competition phase Uh, this is kind of like what elites tend to do Um, the way to look at it is the early preparation phase is gonna be where you are gradually building up volume the number of high intensity sessions is gonna be lower um and really high intensity like vo2 max sessions are not going to be present at all really Um, unless you're doing something really short like 400 meters i don't think there's a reason to it doesn't look like there doesn't appear to be a reason to do them this early in the season as you move to your mid to late preparation phase um depending on the length the longer your event your goal event is the longer you're going to hold back on these kind of vo2 sessions but for the most part like high intensity work is going to start creeping in and your volume is going to peak at this point your actual hours ran miles ran is going to peak at this point now then you move through to the the pre-competition phase your big kind of prep this is where you hone your skills you've got all the volume done and now you're just sharpening your arsenal. So this is where you'll have more really high intensity sessions like VO2 max sessions. You'll have more threshold sessions a week. You'll kind of peak in the number of high intensity sessions that you are doing per week. Your total running time will decrease. And then you'll go into the competition phase. If you're just doing one marathon, then this kind of mid-competition phase is more just like it's not really a thing. But if you're doing shorter events, like you're doing 5Ks and you've got like a season where you're doing like, I don't know, five or eight or however many, this is the training you're doing in between these events. The number of very high sessions may drop a little bit um, depending on what you've kind of peaked at. But for the most point, because you're going to really dial back the volume again a little bit, these very high intensity sessions that are kind of short in length are useful to just maintain fitness. That's all that's going on. You're not, your goal shouldn't, it may happen, but the goal shouldn't be to get fitter during this period. It is run what you've brung. This is the fitness you have achieved for the year. Now keep it. So you find out the minimum effective dose of volume and intensity that is needed to maintain that fitness. And that's what you do. All the hard work is done. Now it's just perfecting racecraft and it's uh, just keeping yourself sharp. And that 
is periodization. So on to something that I think could be dreaded for various runners, but strength training for running, going to the gym, or not going to the gym for that matter, but strength training. When it comes to strength training, it becomes less and less common the longer the running distance is for the amount that athletes do, aka marathon runners do less strength training in general than 800 meter runners. Strength training is an integral part of human health and longevity, so it should not be avoided completely. However, this is where it reflects back to the, is your goal ultimate performance or health and longevity? I ultimate health. you got to pick one of these two. You could be somewhere in the middle, but you may as well optimize for one. If you decide to uh, run your best time at a race, then modifying, reducing, or eliminating strength training completely in the preparation phase before a race can help you get more mileage in due to time and suffering fewer performance detriments from the during your high intensity sessions as a result of weight training. Um, there is some work that suggests that even for marathon runners, performing heavy concentric movements like trap bar deadlifts with no eccentric portion can prevent muscle fiber damage but exhibit a form of hypercompensation adaption as a result improving force production and running speed now that may have been a lot of jargon that was just thrown out there but um essentially okay so concentrate eccentric basically you just lift the weight off the ground you lift the weight off the ground explosively but within reason to allow for that strong force generation and build that strength but then you don't put put the weight like take the weight down to the ground slowly because you're trying to inhibit as much of the muscle fiber damage because this can be something done maybe three weeks out and you exhibit this hypercompensation which is where a drastic change happens to the body as a result of a novel and extreme stimulus that has just occurred and then this can show positive effects on your running it isn't something to be done all year round it's just key event two or three weeks out do this for two sessions then in your taper do your taper and then you will likely see some kind of benefit but this is just something i've picked up midway through some podcasts and other resources um, that individual coaches and trainers have utilized so i've sort of covered this already but 5k and 10k versus marathon and half marathon what is the difference in training i had to say it but as i said before at the elite level there is a limited difference in training volume of middle distance runners and marathon runners um, the difference mainly emerged when looking at the intervals that they utilize to tailor their fitness to the specific demands of their race, with shorter distance runners performing more weight training and more high intensity sessions than marathon runners. So for most people, volume is your limiting uh, factor. In reality, for most people, whether they're running a 5k race or a marathon, your performance is going to be limited by your volume. Yeah, there'll be an element of other factors, but if you can do 10 hours a week training for a 5K and you can do 10 hours a week training for a marathon, both are equally adequate, but arguably it, you are still somewhat limited. And so thinking that because you did 10 hours a week and did a good marathon, 
that respectively you can do three hour run like weekly volume and do amazing in a 5k that's not the case you probably do better in that 5k having done 10 hours in a week than you maybe would have done with 10 hours a week or in the marathon because respectively as a total required training volume it may be different but you're less likely maybe to taper off during the run but essentially the differences are marathon runners will do more of these kind of threshold runs of they are seeking to have this continuous high output whereas 5k and 10k and middle distance runners in general are just looking for this insane ceiling that they're trying to reach of what they can just wring out of their bodies for a really short period of time and not what can they just pound away at which is kind of unfair to marathon runners they are also wringing out really like ounces of performance but you're more likely to see a, a record being broke by a 5k runner with them getting across the line and just collapsing versus a marathon runner who may break a record and walk across the line and seem like somewhat unfazed in a way they are knackered but because they're operating on this level where effectively they could have probably ran a little bit longer at that speed and they're kind of teetering on the line of what's possible it's just that if they go a slightly bit faster they suddenly go into a phase of utilizing different fuels and running out of energy whereas that is what the 5k runner is doing they're just going straight into that red zone and just pounding away like going for it so that's the only difference really volume and uh somewhat somewhat for amateurs untrained okay and finally tapering i thought there's something good to put in there especially if you're firing some kind of periodization you're going to want to utilize the benefits of a taper but what are the benefits of the taper and what is a taper so generally scientific guidelines for a likely effective taper in endurance related sports are two to three week period incorporating 40 to 60 percent reduction in training volume following a progressive non-linear format while training intensity and frequency are maintained or only slightly reduced the long non-linear format just means you're, you're just you kind of you might dump suddenly a lot of volume uh, off suddenly rather than just gradually taking it away um, maybe to try kind of peak freshman your freshness really close to the event um, but gradually increasing freshness beforehand the length of the taper is usually determined by the level of fatigue and the length of the race middle distance running uh, a one-week taper is usually enough and then a marathon depending how much fatigue you've put on your body it could be two to three weeks depending whether you're carrying any niggles or not uh, according to studies of a well-trained endurance athlete a realistic performance goal for the final taper should be a performance improvement of about two to three percent now these are really hard to get right as you have to have faith in the fact that you are getting faster even though your training is reducing but let's go back to that two to three percent that is a huge increase this is the amount that people could be training all winter for or buying 200 pound carbon shoes for it's a big 
improvement. So getting your taper right and kind of putting some thought into it, how you're going to manage it earlier in the season is a good thing to do so that when it comes to it, you just say, okay, this is what I think works. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to stick to this plan. And this is kind of, I think, where coaches can be quite useful for, especially for these taper weeks. You kind of throw them the keys and say, tell me what to do and I'm going to have faith in you. And with that, thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want more content like this, there are plenty of previous episodes to check out. But before you do, why not follow the podcast and leave it a rating wherever you get your podcasts from, or even better, share it with a friend. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, I can be contacted at the VO2 lounge at gmail.com. And with that, I will see you in the next one.